Some of you are sitting in new seats today, and it's really confusing me. I'm going to pray, and you move while I'm praying. (laughs) Creatures of habit, we are. I want to begin with a short quotation this morning. I am really into evidence at this point in my life. There's the quote. I'm really into evidence at this point in my life. That's what someone said to me not long ago as they suggested to me that there's not enough evidence for the legitimacy of Christianity for them to believe in Christ. Because they're really into evidence. I would suggest to you that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to Matthew, In so many ways, the whole thing is about evidence. The whole thing is about describing a historic person living in a historic place, doing things not in the backwoods, in darkness, but in public, so that any reasonable person who wants to trust in Christ based upon the evidence is a sane person. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, where Matthew will continue his argument. He's going to show us again and again and again, we're not talking about fantasy land, we're not talking about somebody's brother's cousin's sister's relative who did something somewhere we heard, and if you just have enough faith, perhaps it will help you in life. He's talking about someone who was, I'm going to use this uh, description, a public person. And he does things publicly to substantiate, to give evidence, to give authenticity to his claims. The reason to not trust in Jesus is not because there is no historic evidence. As an aside, it's a spiritual issue, ultimately. But what I want to do is encourage you by having us work through Matthew's gospel account and to see that he's going out of his way to show that Jesus is extraordinary. But he's extraordinary before eyewitnesses and earwitnesses for the historical record. And if you're going to trust in Christ, that would be reasonable. And it would be actually unreasonable to not trust in Christ. It really is the burden of his gospel account. So if you're a Christian here today, I want to help encourage you uh, by suggesting in one sense, by looking at the end of Matthew 4, that that you're you're not insane. (laughs) Keep trusting him. There's reason to trust in him. And if you're not a Christian... Ultimately, God has to move in your heart and deal with the spiritual issue. I know that. But we're not a bunch of people here gathering so that we might have faith in faith or faith in fables or faith in the force. Um, We're talking about trusting in the historic person who made huge claims. And before eyewitnesses did things to show that he wasn't blowing smoke. Okay? It's exciting, it's great, it's grand. It should fuel our worship, but it should fuel our our trust in Him, our confidence in Him. 
So what we're going to do this morning is look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 25. It's two sections, and the first section is a sampling of Jesus calling the disciples to follow after him, and it's remarkable. The second section is Jesus showing by what he does that he meets the requirements to be the Messiah. Uh, teaching, preaching, telling the truth, and healing people, doing what would otherwise not be able to be done. Okay? And it's rather extraordinary, and I hope it really encourages you. I'm certainly motivated to work through it. So we won't pre-read it. Um, we're just going to go ahead and jump in and stop along the way. Remember Jesus, remember if you're here in the past, um, if not, Jesus is in the Galilee region, which is to the north of Israel, um, today bordering on Lebanon and Syria and Jordan up in the north. Um, he's in the Galilee region, probably in the upper north side of the Sea of Galilee, because that's where Capernaum is. We learned about that last week. And he's going to be in that area, uh, away from Jerusalem to the south, away from Nazareth, which is to the north, but he's further north. And here he is recruiting his disciples, and it's impressive. So look with me, if you would, at least at the opening several words of verse 18, Matthew chapter 4, where it says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, otherwise known as Lake Tiberias, the lowest freshwater lake in the world, on the north end probably. So there he is walking by the Sea of Galilee, Lake Tiberias. He saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Okay, pretty straightforward, pretty clear. If you stay at a hotel on the Sea of Galilee and wake up early enough in the morning, you'll probably see fishermen coming in. They're still doing it today, but with motors. Okay, let's keep going. Verse, 15, verse 19 says, And he said to them, so this is Jesus saying to those two, Peter and Andrew, his brother, And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Anybody else grow up singing the song? I didn't learn anything about the Bible that I can remember, but I will make you fishers of men, fishers of men. Anyway, wasn't just in the Lutheran church that we did that? Did Baptists do that? Catholics? If you follow me. I'm not going to sing it, but in case I were, that's how it would sound. <laughs> so, fishermen. He calls them to follow after him from what we know from Jewish scholars. Um, this is, this is a, a new concept to say fishers of men. There's no other examples. Maybe we'll discover one in archaeology sometime. But as of now, there's no other precedent. He's not borrowing this from a saying that was common. Uh, he makes it up himself apparently. Not that that's super important, but uh, I'll make you fishers of men. Okay, What you're doing might be a good occupation, but I'm going to do something that is more significant, more important, okay? And now let's pretend, like a mo for, let's pretend for a moment that we don't know how it goes from here. So here is this guy who they may know something about. It probably is reasonable to think they know something about him. How much? We don't know. He's from Nazareth, the wrong place, where nothing good has come out of Nazareth, according to the biblical record. And he's there on the, sea, on the seashore, the lake shore technically, and they're in their boats off the shore, and he says, I want you to leave everything, I want you to follow me, and I've got a better job for you, I'll make you fishers of men. And my question is, who does that? It should cause us to scrunch our face up if we're pretending like we don't know what's going on next. 
And the reason I say that is because it's meant, it's designed to show us that Jesus is extraordinary. Okay? If he's, the, if he's just the, the common loon or the common person, who does he think he is? What's he even talking about? Let's keep reading. It says in verse 20, Matthew likes this word to, for effect. That's why I was setting you up for effect and said, let's pretend. 20 says, immediately. He'll say it twice in our text, but it's on purpose. Immediately, right then, boom, they left their nets and followed him. Again, my question is, who do you do that for? It's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. You don't do that for just anybody. You do that for someone who you view to one degree or another as exceptional, extraordinary. You don't leave your lifelong profession. Up until not very long ago, more than likely, if you were a man, you did what your dad did. It's a very recent phenomenon that you do something different. If your dad's a plumber, you're going to be a plumber. Your dad's a dairy cow raiser, whatever you call those people. That's what, that's what you do. So here Jesus says, I want you to leave your present day occupation and you're going to follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. And it's meant to cause us to go, huh? Immediately they left their nets and followed him. We're on to something because you don't do that for just anybody. And again, I've heard interesting stories about people leaving their jobs, but not quite like this one. And even if they know something significant about Jesus, I mean, they for sure don't realize what they're getting into as far as Matthew 16, I will build my church through the apostles. Those guys, the underqualified guys. And by the way, again, what, what Bible scholars tell us, I'm not going to pretend like I know all of this, but what Bible scholars tell us that uh, when you're going to choose a rabbi, typically, or you're going to have a rabbi, you as a Jewish person are going to f- select your rabbi. Jesus has it the other way around. He's selecting his pupils. He's doing the picking. They're not going around interviewing the different rabbis and saying, we would like that one. It's actually counterintuitive. It's reversed from what the tradition was. I thought that was fascinating. And so verse 21 says, And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father mending their nets. And he called them. And here we go again, verse 22, for effect, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Second time. What do they know? I don't know what they know. But now they are leaving their father, leaving the business, and they're following somebody who it has been said about, he comes from the wrong place. Something special is happening. I want to pose to you for now, we'll answer it later, but is the specialness, if you will, them or Jesus? Something special is happening. Now, for those of you who are really thinking about this, and I'm I'm sure that's most of you, if not all of you, being a little facetious, sarcastic. In In Mark's gospel account, 
See, I read that and I thought, this is good, Jesus is the point. But I did think to myself, that's interesting, Jesus is calling people to leave their parents. It won't be the first time he tells people to leave their parents. But interestingly enough, you're supposed to care for your parents in the Jewish world. In fact, in Mark's gospel account, Jesus lambasts the religious leaders because they would try to get people to leave their families and not care for their parents because they're so spiritual. Okay? So Mark chapter 7, verse 11, they had this statement. They called it Corbin, given to God. It's all for God. I'm so spiritual. God will take care of my family. And Jesus doesn't like that way of thinking because Jesus thinks you should honor your father and mother and uphold the law. So I'm telling you more than you want to know, probably. But inquiring minds want to know, and I have an inquiring mind. And I thought to myself, is Jesus wanting them to do something that's not right? I would suggest no, because Mark chapter 1 verse 20 says that Zebedee also had hired servants. So just in case you were wondering. They were wealthy enough that they weren't going to go without if the boys left. Again, that's just how my mind works. Maybe I'm telling you more than you want to know. I am, but it made me go, huh. Is this a form of Corbin, which Jesus criticizes? No, it's not. They're going to be fine, or Jesus wouldn't have done it. I think there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. Okay, let's do some, let's do some application before we move on. What's the takeaway? It's just a sampling, by the way. Matthew just gives us a sampling. He doesn't give, him, give us the choosing of all of them, just those. That's how he does it. This is how he did it. He called them, and immediately they responded. And so the takeaway is for us to say at least, wow, you don't do that for just anybody. Now, another takeaway could be, you know what? These guys, these four, they did the right thing. I mean, if Jesus calls you to follow him, that's what you should do, even if it means dropping your profession. Think that's true? I think that's true. I think they did the right thing. And God is going to use them to do great things. And so maybe a takeaway could be, I think a takeaway could be, you know, if Jesus calls you to do something, you should do it. But let's not put the emphasis in the wrong place. I mean, we're, we're going to see Peter, quite frankly, apart from God having his finger on him and, and Jesus helping him, Peter is a mess. Peter's not the one here to be extolled. Oh, isn't Peter so faithful? He's so good. When, when Jesus calls, he does the right thing all the time. You haven't read the rest of the New Testament. The emphasis here clearly, I would suggest to you, is not to say, let's really admire these amazing, wonderful apostles. It's meant to say, look, when Jesus, the unique one who we're going to see as the Messiah, the one that came to save his people from their sins, when he calls people, they respond the right way because of who he is. And maybe I'm trying to get this off my chest a little bit and expressing some daddy wounds that I have. Um, because at this very place, I listen to, a, I listen to an expository sermon and I'm, I'm sitting by the, the seaside listening to the sermon and the pastor's going on and 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 on. Nothing about Jesus. It's all about these faithful disciples. And you should be faithful like they're faithful. And I had a little come to Jesus moment there in the water, sitting by the water, and I thought, I'm not ever, ever, ever going to have the main point ever again in my whole life be other than who the main point is supposed to be. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. 
He's the special one worthy of your trust and worship. Thank you for listening to me. I'll get off the couch. If you listen to enough sermons, you'll, you'll know what I mean. I think maybe being... Never mind. Let's, let, let's move on. Okay, let's move on. I, I'm having, I'm, I'm conflicted. Um, let's move on to now the second section at the end of Matthew 4 where he's authenticating through proofs, through evidences, through teaching, preaching, and healing. And this, if you're discouraged at all today, I, I hope you are encouraged. Um, I think this has the ability to encourage you. Serious? Verse 23 says, and, and he went throughout all Galilee. So the region of Galilee may be making up a third of the whole country according to some estimates. So he went through all the northern area, through all Galilee. Notice not backwoods in somebody's basement. And I heard a rumor that perhaps, no, throughout all Galilee, public figure teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So he's not like the Qumran cult out in hiding away from public because public is bad and people are bad. No, he's not like the Qumran community cult. He's in public throughout the whole region, engaging and interacting. He's not hiding out in a synagogue, having them all come to him. No, he's making the rounds. Again, out before eyes, out with people, out with all kinds of people. It's surely Matthew's emphasis. Public figure. And he cares about all kinds of people, not just people who are part of the little, little click cult group. Beyond that, commentators point out that it's, it's intriguing, and I think it is, in verse 23, um, where it says he's teaching in their synagogues because as a Jew, Jesus has as much right as anybody else to be invited to teach in a synagogue. So, Maybe what's happening is Matthew's purposely creating some distance between Jesus and the current living religious leaders. Because even though he's a Jew, there's a distinction between what his message is going to be and what their message has been. So they're their synagogues. Um, fascinating. A synagogue, in, in one sense, you think of like a church gathering. Uh, in fact, in the New Testament later, it's actually a word that's going to be used for the church. One of the words. But it's, it's, the, it's the hub, it's the social hub, right? The religious social hub. If you're a Jew, you go to synagogue. It's, it's, where, it's where dynamic happens. It's where life happens. It's where you go there to hear God's word taught. It's where you go to observe God, God's law administered. Uh, Old Testament law, including flogging, would be done at synagogue. How about that for a church service? Um, interesting. The good old days aren't so good sometimes. Um, it's so it's where the law is taught, promoted, defending, admit, defended, administered. Again, social life happens. Think in terms of if you're a Jew and you're living away from the city of Jerusalem. So you're away from the temple. You're away from the place to be. So you travel there on holy days, right? For special occasions, you go to the temple. But in the meantime, as you're doing your job and you're, you're, you're caring about your life with your family, if you have one, you go to synagogue. 
So that's what's happening here. And Jesus is teaching in the synagogues. He's giving instruction. Fascinatingly enough, Matthew's account doesn't give us an example of what one of his teachings would have been. We could say we know they're biblical. We know they're true. I would say we know they were Christocentric. Um, because if he is the Messiah and we have Sabbath and types and shadows to borrow from the Apostle Paul, the substance is him. He's helping them to connect dots and see that he's the one. He's giving instruction. Sermon on the Mount will definitely give us a great dose of what he would have been teaching, in my opinion, but it's not going to be in a synagogue. It's going to be out in public, and that's going to be chapters 5, 6, and 7, and I can't wait. It's going to be great. Preached in a similar region. Now, also in our text, he says it says that he was not only teaching in the synagogues, in their synagogues, notice they're proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. It's the same word for preaching. So he's giving instruction, but distinct, he's proclaiming, right? He's, he's saying, he's, he's an announcer. This is what's true. This is how it is. I'm like, I'm him. The kingdom is coming. I'm the king. Listen to what God says. Preaching it carries with it authority. Um, it's, it's, it's objective. It's, it's declarative. So he's preaching the kingdom. This is it. Be ready. Earlier he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now it's the, now it's the good news of the kingdom. I have a good announcement to make for everybody. I, I've got good news. Not condemnation. I've got good news. Good news about the kingdom, kingdom of God. Gospel of the kingdom. Why would he be doing that? Well, it's because this is what, what they've been waiting for. This is what we've been waiting for. Good news that would come. In other words, if we connect the dots, the good news is Messiah has come to save his people from their sins. Chapter 1, verse 21. I'm him. It's good news to be preached. Hey, Davidic covenant fulfilled. Second Samuel chapter 7. In me. And I, I mention this a lot, but I'll mention it again. That there would be one who would come in the line of David. He's the one who comes in the line of David. The one who would be able to rule and reign perfectly. Perfect justice. No faults. No foibles. No bribes. No compromises. Rule and reign. Perfect righteousness. We learned about this last week when we cross-referenced Isaiah chapter 9. And his kingdom will have no end. Well, that takes a certain kind of individual because they keep dying, these kings. They keep doing the wrong thing and they keep dying. And there's going to be one whose kingdom who has no end, who's long ago been promised. And Jesus is saying, it's good news. And again, I have to remind you that when we have Jesus Christ, it's Jesus Messiah from the Old Testament, which means anointed one, which is used symbolically for a king. So in that sense, for shock value to get you thinking the right way, there have been many Christs. Because there have been many anointed ones. Because there have been many kings. Because there have been many messiahs. David would be one. Now. Good news. The one that history's been waiting for. That you've been anticipating even if you haven't been anticipating it. Is here. And by the way, let's remember. How many times do, times do I say by the way in a sermon? A king is a Messiah for God in Israel is supposed to be protector, provider, 
deliverer, right? Doing what's good for the people. Not the tyrant, not the abuser, not the one who's in it for himself to build a bigger empire for himself. And so we sometimes have to rethink our our view of, of, of Messiah. Gracious, kind, building up, restoring, meeting needs. He's the Messiah. He's the forever ruling, reigning, providing, delivering, protecting, rescuing, on and on king. But it's one thing to claim it. He's doing things that actually would substantiate it. And we're going to see more of that in just a little while. But it's good to see the announcement of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. Maybe one other cross-reference in case you have forgotten or haven't been with us recently. I think it's helpful to associate the kingdom. You can think about domain, um, but it's the ultimate domain. Um, The promised one where there's health and happiness and provision. Uh, But uh, theologians I admire equate the kingdom with the new creation. And, And I'm part of that club. Okay? If you're united to the king, you're part of the new creation. Because the kingdom ultimately will be the new creation where everything's right. Okay, so this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, which lots of you know well. But think with it, through me, think with, it with me for a moment. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, again, think Old Testament-ish, E, right? Christ, Messiah. And in is united to, united with by faith, or united to by faith. So if anyone, Jew or Gentile, anyone, any, any good person, bad person, because it's all about Christ, if anyone is in Christ, united to Christ by faith, united to the King by faith, united to the Anointed One by faith, that person is a new creation. Some of your translations say creature. I'm going to say both are true. New creation. Old things passed away, behold, new things have come. And so that's even true for Paul, even if you haven't stepped into the new creation yet, even if it hasn't become actualized yet, even if it hasn't become a a reality yet in this world, you're united to him and his work is done. You are a new creation in anticipation for experiencing its fullness. And that really helps me. It's kind of an aha light bulb moment like, oh, new creation. Kingdom is good news because if we have kingdom, we have new creation. And my body hurts and my mind hurts and my relationships hurt. And I cry and have pain and grief and difficulty and the news, oh, the news. I'm a citizen of the kingdom, new creation in Christ. It's good news. For them, under Roman dominion and occupation, for us, in different ways. Then, finally, in that section, so this, this, this trifecta of actions authenticating. So he's teaching and instructing, he's proclaiming, and then he's healing. Healing every disease and every affliction. And that, by the way, is... That is very important for Messiah. 
Because when you read the prophetic texts, the Messiah, deliverer, provider, comforter, encourager, protector, the ultimate one is going to bring healing. The ultimate one is going to bring physical restoration as well. New creation restoration. And so here by Jesus healing, he's authenticating. He's showing that he's the one who's qualified. He's the one who can do it. It's actually really, really important that he would be able to do this. And that he does it. Removal of suffering of all kinds. Oppression of all kinds. In no uncertain terms, this may may or may not be something you know, depending if you're new or not, new to the Bible. But in no uncertain terms, the Old Testament and the New Testament tell us why there's suffering in the world. And it tells us, they both tell us why there is hardship, pain, and ultimately death. Sickness, all that goes with it. In no uncertain terms, Old Testament and New Testament teaches that it's because of sin. Now I need to explain that because I don't want to be unbiblical in what I'm saying. I need to, I need to nuance that and help you understand that in case you don't. But the reason bad things happen in this world, it's because of sin. So what we need is a Messiah who takes care of sin, does the right thing, because that means he'll be able to, he- to bring healing and restoration. Now, please don't, don't mishear me. We, what we don't mean is on a one-to-one level. So when I get sick, when you get sick, when a family member gets sick, really sick, then you eventually breathe your last breath, or they do. What we're not saying, what Jesus doesn't teach, in fact, he teaches, teaches the opposite elsewhere, it's because of their sin. The Bible teaches that because of Adam, our representative, everyone's representative, because of his disobedience to God, the wages of sin is death. And all that goes with that, all that goes with death, the suffering and the tears and the hardship and the heartache, it's because it's a broken world, it's a sin-cursed world, because of rebellion against God. You've got to know that. You've got to know that. You need to know that to understand why bad things happen to people you love and that I love. Notice I didn't say why bad things happen to good people. Because we're all united to Adam. That's why we need, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the last Adam, the second Adam. We need the one to represent us, and he represents us by faith. If we trust in him, he's our last representative. And as Messiah, he delivers and brings physical restoration, new creation that you're a part of if you're trusting in him. And that means no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. It's very logical how it works but you got to know you got to know he needs to be the qualified one to help you to get rid of the tears and to get rid of the pain it's why we point people to Christ to trust in Christ because there's no way around it he's our hope our only hope he delivers on that kind of level first peter chapter 2 verse 24 by his wounds you have been healed Quoting Isaiah 53, and with his wounds you were healed. So before that, 
He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds you were healed. That's what Peter quotes. Clearly talking about Jesus in light of the book of Acts. Our scripture reading for this morning, again, David forward-looking, saying Psalm 103, verse 3, who forgives all our iniquity, who heals all your diseases. Ultimately in Messiah. Malachi 4.2 is one of my favorites. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son, S-U-N, but it's capitalized in the translation I'm reading from on purpose because it's messianic. Dawning, brightness, light out of darkness. You fear my name shall the Son of righteousness arise. I'm quoting King James here with healing in his wings. I think appropriately, not its wings. Messiah is going to be a healer. Jesus is a public person teaching, preaching, doing all kinds of things, but one of the things he's doing and he needs to be doing or he's not trustworthy to be the ultimate healer is he's healing. He's authenticating for reasonable people to connect reasonable dots and say, he's the one. He's the one. Okay, there's more. It doesn't end there. How about verse 24? So his fame spread throughout all Syria. Beyond Israel now. I get excited about this. It's not just for the Jews. It's not just the weird Jewish thing either. No, now his fame, he's been, he, because of what he's doing, he, he's famous in Syria. Probably not exactly the borders we would know today. Uh, beyond, uh, to the north of Galilee, from the Mediterranean Sea, people think all the way to Damascus, is if you're a first century reader and you're hearing that and you see, but it's, it's beyond Israel. He's famous beyond Israel. That's important if Jesus is the savior of the world, Jew and Gentile. It's really important. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Verse 25, And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis. So that region and beyond, the Decapolis, the ten cities, the ten Roman cities, that were anything but Jewish. He's famous and known and heard of even in the Decapolis. Some of you have been to maybe the most famous Decapolis city still in existence, Bet Shan, knocked down by an earthquake. It's an amazing archaeological site. Jesus was there. Okay, Jesus is healing or he's famous there. They know of him there. They're pagans, they're Gentiles, not Jews. Some of you have been to Jerish, another remaining one just outside of Amman, Jordan. Gentile predominance is the emphasis. And I'm going to emphasize that for you right now because, again, we think Matthew's gospel is the Jewish gospel. And I think that's true. Predominantly Jewish audience. Mark's gospel, Gentile audience, I think that's true too. But please don't miss it. We're getting a good emphasis of Gentiles. Okay? And it shouldn't surprise us, right? If we think about Abrahamic covenant, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Clear back in Genesis, this is how it's been designed. 
through the seed in light of Galatians. And here Jesus is making sure not just the Jews have seen and witnessed and know about him. Now Jews and Gentiles know about him as well. Public figure. And then it says, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Emphasis is on breadth. Breadth, breadth, breadth. Public figure, public figure, public figure. Not a backward, backwoods, obscurantist, supposed healer. Right? Legend has it, somebody knows somebody who knows somebody who lives in the woods and comes out at night and he can heal you. Right? Jesus is not that in however they would say it in Hebrew back in the day or Aramaic or Greek. He's, he's not that guy. Public figure. Famous, known. This is what he's been doing. You're not an idiot if you trust in him and follow him. It, it's Matthew's burden to show. Breadth. Breadth. Reality. Also, Jew and Gentile, he came to save his people from their sins. I'm going to be careful to not read that as Jews alone in 121, because here we see it going beyond. Do you want another Kentucky accent or not? I don't know if it's Kentucky or not. We traveled to Kentucky a couple years ago, and we're at the Taco Bell, and it was so fun to be a dad. It was just a great dad moment. We're standing in line at the Taco Bell. Uh, Number one, they were out of tortillas. I don't know how that works. On the same trip, Jimmy John's was out of bread. And we're like, is this the apocalypse? I'm not even kidding. But the guy in front of us, I'm just watching my kids, my adult kids, my young kids. Ain't, you know, we've, we've driven through Kentucky before, but when the guy stands there and he goes, I want number nine up there. And it was awesome. I want number nine up there. I've been wanting a number nine up there ever since. Okay. I digress. <laughs> Hope I don't get fired next week, but we needed some levi- levity. Um, and if you're from Kentucky, God bless you. <laughs> let's, let's know that Jesus was known by all different kinds of people. Romans, Gentile Greeks, Jews. Some of them liked him, some of them didn't like him. But there was no question that he was a real person doing real things that were verifiable. Okay? You don't have to turn your brain off to trust in him. Now let's end by talking a little bit about this matter of Jesus being qualified and Jesus healing. And I want to do this. And I want to say, step, see it as vital and important. To be Messiah, he's got to be able to deliver you from every oppression including your physical problems. Now, for us, ultimately, not the preview version that we're reading about, but if we go on to read, it's tied to resurrection. This is preview. He's going to be bodily raised from the dead, and he's raised for everyone who would ever trust in him. And if you read 1 Corinthians 15, your moment of wonder and greatness and new body is tied to his resurrection. Okay? This is preview. That's really what, what's, what's ultimate, okay? So our resurrection, because of his resurrection, and, and that's for a different text and a different time. It's all positive. Don't, don't, don't be nervous about healings, okay? 
it's good and right and awesome. And you, you, you need it. You need to be healed and you need to be resurrected and you need to have your pain and suffering and difficulty taken away. And Jesus is the answer. I kid you not. Don't want to end on a negative. I want you to be encouraged on that positive note. You look to Christ. He's going to take away the affliction and the difficulty, demonic or otherwise, physical or otherwise, psychological or otherwise. He proved that he's the one you can trust for your resurrection, even in this preview. Now, but to close, to end on a negative, um, let's be clear about this. A lot of things are done in the name of Christianity and that are supposed healing that aren't. And let's just have a, a moment of honesty. God can do anything he wants to do. God can heal and help people through doctors. He does. I'm thankful for that. God can heal miraculously. But I'm willing to say that it's not the norm. By definition, a miracle is not normal. Okay? The whole point here is to show that Jesus is the one. Okay? It's Him. Secondly, His apostles, because He's authenticating that He's the one. His apostles, to a limited degree, will have the ability to heal. And it doesn't last. It's authenticating their legitimacy to the point where Paul has to tell Timothy, you know, your stomach problems, I'll slay you in the spirit and you won't have them anymore. Have more faith. No. Drink a little wine with your water. Maybe that'll help. You see it ceasing. Okay. Jesus healed all of their sicknesses. There were no buses that left after the money-raising campaign like Benny Hinn has. I've seen it with my own two eyes. It's sick, and he's a liar. Okay? People don't leave. Uh, I've watched with my own two eyes John Wimber dying of throat cancer, preaching healing. It's a sham, and it's a lie, and you ought not believe it. And I say so with anger as a pastor who cares about people. Jesus is the Savior who will bring you perfect healing. Trust in Him. Don't give a dime to liars who are using His name. It makes me feel like Martin Luther, in a sense. Martin Luther, who was not all upset about this as much, is he was so upset that in a a different region, they were selling indulgences so you could get people you loved out of purgatory sooner. And they would play on people's heartstrings to get grandma out of purgatory. And Luther was enraged because they were spiritual abusers. The people who tell you that if you give them money or just believe enough, Jesus will heal you are spiritual abusers. I'll go on record as saying it. I've been around the world. I've heard all kinds of people claim it. It simply isn't true. He's not trying to lengthen your leg. And in three days or three weeks and three months, you might feel better. It's a miracle. That's not how Jesus did it. It's not the same thing. He healed all of them and he healed them instantly. Look to Jesus. He's a great savior. I'm saying it with joy in my heart, but with sternness as well, because there are so many people who are manipulators and liars. Don't listen to them. Don't act like you were born yesterday. 
Jesus is authenticating his ministry. Look to him. The apostles will short-term authenticate their ministry, which focuses on Christ. Look to Christ. No gift of healing today. Because we're not authenticating a new Messiah. We're waiting for him to return, and that's the next thing on the timetable. Help people see beyond it, right? Help people see beyond it. We want, we long for the good of people we love. You know, the best thing for people you love is a resurrected Savior whose name is Jesus. My friend Emmett Champion, who was a member here, died not that long ago. And he came out of the lies of charismaticism. I think I still have his Kenneth Copeland Bible in my office just to keep me smiling. He said, Pastor, here's all my junk. Here's all my Jesus junk. I want it gone. But Emmett, when I first met him, used to say, you know, the Bible says, by his stripes, you're healed. I'm waiting for my healing. I wonder if I'm going to get it. I keep praying for my healing, Pastor. I wonder if I'm going to get it. And early on in our relationship, I said, Emmett, that text says, by his stripes, you are healed. It doesn't say you might be. You've been listening to the wrong people misquote the Bible. By his stripes, you are are healed. It's already done because of the work of Christ and it is done. And it is yours most assuredly. But you won't experience it until you breathe your last breath and are united to Christ. This is how the Apostle Paul speaks in Romans chapter 8 when he says, you are having been glorified. No one's glorified. But it's as good as done because the work of Christ is done. So please be encouraged to look to Christ, but be encouraged to not follow spiritual perverts who are trying to buy another jet. Look to Jesus. He's powerful to save, worthy of our praise, worthy of our trust. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Omaha Bible Church. Thank you for even, I hope, giving me a burden to be pastoral and to warn and encourage. Indeed, Jesus is a great Savior. Thank you that he proved that he is and that he always will be. May our ultimate rest in, be found in him. Thank you for an empty tomb, which is empty on our behalf if we trust in him so that we might have restored health. In Jesus' name, amen.